listening to the Dr. Claude Kirshner Show. My name is Dr. Claude Kirshner, and we are here to serve organizational leaders and agile teams who strive for excellence and differentiation. I hope you enjoy the content. If you have any questions or would like some additional resources, please visit our website at www.archconsults.com. Enjoy. Creative individuals are great. Uh, right brain thinkers, intuitive thinkers. This is very important. Also, we need left brain thinkers, logical, rational, like let's hold that creativity down a little bit. But we should unleash those right brain thinkers and those creative peoples within our organization, within certain boundaries and structures to do great things because we know that change is coming. We cannot stay still. We are going to talk about two great subjects. One is organizing organizations, structuring organizations. And then the other topic is innovation and change within the workplace. And they kind of tie in together. So we'll explore that and how that works. So let's get started. When we think about people and people coming together around a particular objective or a particular mission, it's important to understand that if you group people together at some point, the people that have been grouped together are going to need some type of structure on how to accomplish tasks or accomplish goals, or they're going to need the procedural understanding. So when you think about humans and social science and teams, it becomes more efficient and it becomes natural to start organizing and structuring people around a common goal, like I said. So we're going to talk about how to do that today, some of the positives and negatives of um, different types of structures. And certainly we're going to segue into the change in innovation within organizations and the structure of which people are you know, grouped into matters when it comes to change and innovation. So if you think about it, uh, you think about organizing, this is a, a major part of management. And the question is, why do we have to organize? And I sort of answered that question in the intro. And the world that we're venturing into in organizations, a lot of times when you think about innovation and doing something new, you're venturing into somewhat of a chaotic territory. You're, you're doing something different. And then in that chaotic territory of doing something different, eventually you're going to create structure from the chaos. And I think that is what organizations get good at, is venturing into the unknown, creating structure, and then figuring out how to operate within that unknown and then venturing into another unknown. And that's sort of the innovation structure, innovation process within companies. So we're going to walk through that a little bit. Organizing, what is organizing? Remember, if we're managers, we are, uh, we're planners, we're organizers, we're leaders, and we're controllers. So organizing is the third you know, part, or it's really the second part of management, because we have these uh, strategies, these plans, these goals, and now it's our job to figure out, okay, how are we going to build in order to have a chain of command, have a workflow, have responsibilities, have authority to get this stuff done. So organizing is the deployment of organizational resources to achieve strategic goals. And the structure is really a set of formal tasks assigned to individuals and departments. It comes with a chain of command, uh, decision-making authority, figuring out job titles and uh, responsibilities and authority for each particular person so that in some way it's logical how things get done around here. So that's really what a structure is for. You know, who's my boss? Who do they report to? How do I make decisions? What can I make decisions on and what can't I make decisions on? This is in essence what structure is all about. 
and we've all seen these organization charts. This is what would we we were going to call later on a functional structure, really a hierarchical functional structure. And it has a president at the top of the structure. And then what happens is there's these different departments. There's a marketing department, there's a production department, there's a human resource department and accounting department. And this is sort of the traditional way in which an organization chart was constructed or it really is constructed. And you can see the chain of command. So down at the bottom here, you see the payroll clerk and you say, okay, well, who does the payroll clerk report to? And the answer to that question is pretty clear. They report to the chief accountant. And okay, so that chief accountant is is responsible for tasks and has authority over the payroll clerk. But then who is that chief accountant accountable to? Who is their boss? And the answer to that question is they are accountable to the vice president of accounting. And then from there, you say, okay, well, who does the vice president accounting report to? And the answer to that is the president. And the buck kind of stops there. The president is really has the responsibility and the authority over this entire organization chart here. It may be somewhat mundane or uh, elementary to look at, but in order to get things done logically, you have to. We have to understand how does this work. And one of the reasons why, and we'll we'll do a practical example, is if you have somebody say in sales that knows that they're supposed to sell something. Okay, that's great. I just sold something, and then you ask them, all right, well, you know, what do I do now? How do I take what I just sold and move it through a process in order for the customer to get what they bought. If there was no structure, if there was no accountability, there was no job titles, a lot of chaotic things can happen. So let's just say that it's pretty clear that the salesperson hands it off to production. If production isn't, there's nobody in production kind of overseeing production, who's to say that when the salesperson hands that off, it's going to be done well. But when the salesperson knows that the vice president of production is ultimately in charge and that person reports to the president, they have no problem handing it off to, say, like the maintenance supervisor. And they know that the maintenance supervisor is understands that they're responsible for this, has some level of accountability, and also has authority to get the work done. So there's a confidence level of transitioning tasks throughout an organization when there's a structure in place. So we talked about division of labor and we talked about chain of command. And these are just really terminologies to go over what I just mentioned. Division of labor, who does what, when, how. We just talked about the salesperson that's supposed to sell the product or service. And then we talked about the production, the, the maintenance supervisor who's supposed to deliver on that product or service. That's really okay. What do you do? What do I do? And let's make that clear. It's a division of labor. And then the chain of command is the the people that they report to, essentially, the authority link. So I, I'm going to unpack authority for a second because this is a, I think it's a, it ties in with morality, ethics, leadership, uh, management, you name it. Authority is bestowed upon a person when they have a title. That is what authority, authority gives you authority over somebody with a formal title. It doesn't give them accountability and responsibility always. Authority is just a formal title. So it's a formal legitimate right of a manager to make decisions, issue orders, and allocate resources to achieve organizationally desired outcomes. Authority is vested in the organizational position, not the person. So I can't I can't just all of a sudden have authority because I am a good leader, a good speaker, a good communicator. I have authority because I am the president of an organization. Therefore, I have authority. 
So somebody within an organization that doesn't necessarily have authority can still have influence and can still make decisions uh, and still lead despite the fact that they don't actually have authority. So authority is accepted by subordinates. Authority flows down the vertical hierarchy. And now we're going to unpack the difference between authority, responsibility, and delegation. So, all right, cool. Now we understand authority. It's positional power. It's it's a, a place within the hierarchy. Responsibility is the duty to perform the task or activity assigned. So once a person in authority assigns a task, that person they assign the task to is responsible for getting that task done. Accountability is the mechanism through which authority and responsibility are aligned. So everybody, if you, we go back to this organizational structure here, everybody's accountable to the president. But the accounts payable person down here at the bottom is not really accountable to the director of marketing. But ultimately, the president is uh, is making sure everybody's accountable. Accountability, again, the mechanism through which authority and responsibility are aligned. Delegation, which is something that every good leader or manager needs to learn how to do appropriately and within reason, is the process that managers use to transfer authority and responsibility down the hierarchy. Assigning tasks, assigning work duties, assigning responsibility, assigning authority. You're delegating authority to somebody else. Uh, one quick Note, it's very difficult to have responsibility over a task, but not have authority. So this happens often. So a lot of times the appropriateness of delegation is to delegate both authority and responsibility in order to get something done. That way that person can hold other people accountable to get stuff done or or can you can hold them accountable because they have both authority and responsibility. If you give, again, if you give a person responsibility, but you don't give them authority, it could be more difficult to get something done because ultimately they have to get it done. But the way in which they get it done, they have less resources, less people that they have authority over in order to get it done. So they have to politic and, you know, it just doesn't work as well. So there's a difference between line authority and staff authority. So line authorities, managers have formal authority to direct and control immediate subordinates. So if like, if you go back to this hierarchy here, the director of human resources has a line authority over the industrial relations manager. The difference between line authority and staff authority is staff authority is narrow authority that includes the right to advise, recommend, and counsel in the staff specialist area of expertise. So let's look at staff authority. And staff authority would be if the director of human resources is advising the vice president of production. I mean, the director of human resources doesn't have line authority over the vice president of production, but the director of human resources can provide counsel and advice and, and within their area of expertise on how to hire people appropriately or how to issue grievances or how to discipline or have constructive conversations with their employees and maybe the process in which we have to terminate somebody or the process in which we have to develop and train our people. So that is more staff authority, advising people that are on equal level to you because of your your specific knowledge um, about that task. You have staff authority over some of the other people on your team. And there's there's a bunch of different um, expertise, like an expert knowledge. Uh, it's a power thing to have expert knowledge, to have relational equity is also sort of a power thing. You may not have authority, but you do know a lot of people and therefore your opinion is very much welcome in these conversations. So that's the difference between line authority and staff authority. Staff authority can be very powerful within organizations too. So span of management is quite interesting. Science out of Harvard University, which is sort of an extreme, says that 
the ideal size of a team is about 4.7. I don't know how you get a 0.7, but it's somewhere between four people and five people on a team is ideal. And uh, some people say it's between five and 12 people on a team. So the, the purpose of me saying that is it's very difficult to truly manage more than, let's just say, 12 people. So if you're thinking about an organization and you're thinking about how do I design this organization and you say, okay, who can I delegate to? Who reports directly to me in the chain of command? How, however many people that is, that's your span of management, the number of employees reporting to a supervisor. So typically what happens is in organizations where there's a high level of expert knowledge and people sort of, the tasks are sort of complicated and nuanced and they're non-program decisions, meaning they um, have to use a lot of their working knowledge each time is different. So like think about a procedure or surgery or potentially like going on a mission or uh, potentially like build a custom house. Like it's different every time. So in, in that situation, you would want to manage less people because those people would tend to need more advice, more time, more input. You have to spend more time with them because of the custom nature of their daily tasks uh, versus let's say an assembly line workers, or uh, let's say that service technicians that are just doing, say, uh, maintenance services like cleaning, janitorial services, landscaping, pool cleaning. Uh, typically what happens is you can manage a little bit more people because the tasks are a little bit more routine and they're repetitive. So that's, that's you know, in that situation, you can have a larger span of management. So that's sort of the difference. That's what you, we should think about is work is stable and routine. You can have more people. You can manage subordinates perform similar work in one location. You can you could manage more people. Subordinates are highly trained. Uh, you can manage more people. Rules and procedures are defined. You can manage more people. Support systems and personnel are available. You can manage more people. There are few non-supervisory activities and manage manager prefers a large span. So in that situation, we can manage more people. The opposite of those situations, we can manage less people. Tall structure versus flat structure. Tall structure is, okay, you have the CEO, then you have the president, then you have the senior vice president of production. Then from there, you have the supervisor of the field technicians. Then you have the co-supervisor of the field technicians. Then you have the lead field technician, and then you have a field technician. So you can see how it it's a tall structure and the, the person on the front line, if something was to really go wrong, they would have to sort of report up that structure and tend, what tends to happen, uh, first of all, there's a lot of good that can happen from tall structures that it's systemized, it's controlled, it's predictable. But the problem is if something needed to get up the chain of command, it would take a long time. So for instance, the BP oil spill was, was an instance where um, somebody noticed that something was wrong very, it was very, they reported it, but they didn't report it correctly. So they skipped the chain of command and unfortunately it didn't go up. It didn't go up the hierarchy as fast as it needed to. So it was a problem. And because of that tall structure at BP, uh, it was more difficult to respond to the, to the oil spill. So you can see in certain situations, a tall structure is not always a good thing. So a flat structure is um, the opposite. We're going to actually look at an example of that less obstruction for the operations managers to have access to the president. Staff specialists, they have direct access to the president. Like there's no, I have to tell so-and-so, I have to tell so-and-so. And finally, maybe two weeks later, the president gets word that I needed to talk to him about something. So that's that's sort of a flat structure. This is uh, Flat structures are happening more often now, especially in knowledge work. And a lot of people, they want autonomy and um, they're, they're highly educated positions. They, they really don't need that many bosses and 
certain companies like Zappos, they actually have a bossless environment. And this kind of parlay, uh, parlays into the creative organization as well and managing change and managing innovation. Because when you have centralization, and this is all about decision-making and authority, can I choose to go to Office Depot and buy you know, $600 worth of office equipment. Well, you know, I got to get sign off from my whatever, and it's got to be within the budget. And there's this whole process to it versus listen, whenever we need something, you have full authority to go ahead and just do it because if we need it, we trust you, we empower you, you just do it. So that would be more decentralization. So centralization is, is a reporting structure. Decision authority is located near the top of the organization. So Again, there's good things to this because the person at the top of the organization knows, you know, for instance, they're signing all the checks. There's nobody else has any company credit cards except for them. So whenever there's purchasing that they purchase it and they know what's being spent and where it's being spent. And but the problem with that is it's slow. And one of my favorite quotes that my father used to use all the time is it's not the big who eats the small, but it's the fast who eats the slow. So in the turbulent environment that we live in, certainly in management and organizations and leadership, it's important to understand that we have to move fast. Sometimes these centralized structures, it doesn't work well. It, that works well when you know there, there's a need for rules, like say the IRS or government authority, or even like hospitals, You know, certain kinds of hospitals and institutions that really need to have regulation. And if somebody on the front line makes a stupid decision, it could jeopardize the welfare of the entire company. That, that's where centralization matters. But decentralization is more prevalent now and certainly is will assist and abet organizations to move and respond quicker to environmental turbulence, to chaos, to change and innovation. So we're going to tie this in a lot to the next chapter as well. Decentralization decision authority is pushed downward to lower organizational levels. People are empowered to make decisions uh, quicker and with less fear. Factors that influence centralization, rapid change and uncertainty. And we talked about some of that. So departmentization is, a, is an interesting one too. And functional structure, and we saw the president, then we have a human resource department, we have an accounting department, we have a production department, and we had a marketing department. That is departmentalization. Is the, the class, let's just look at accounting in general. You're not asking a person that does, let's say, accounts payable, which means they pay the vendors. They, they send money out from the organization to the people that help or they pay the bills essentially. So you're not really asking them to do much else. You're not asking them to do customer service or sales or, you know, employee training and other things outside of their specialty. So departmentalization helps you become more efficient and more effective within that specialty. So the downside of departmentalization is that uh, it's difficult sometimes to communicate among, uh, of different departments, like getting departments to work well together. So let's just use that one example of accounts payable. If somebody in the sales department needs to pay a bill, that person from the sales department is like, well, let me talk to uh, Jill in the accounts payable department. Well, you know, Jill's busy and she can't talk to you right now. Well, I, I need to talk to her. Well, she doesn't really report to you. And, you know, it's more difficult to coordinate these kinds of tasks in within departments. So if you're a good leader, you acknowledge that and you try to work on ways to get that communication, interdepartmental communication into play. I remember often we would have in our organization, we would have a similar situation. We would have people in the field that uh, needed resources. Um, they needed a subcontractor to come out and dig a hole. But the subcontractor, according to the accounting department, had to provide a quote 
And then after they provided a quote, they had to get approval. And then we had to submit a deposit and then they don't get, we have payment terms and all this kind of stuff. And the person in the field of production person just, just needed like a $1,500 job. It's, it's frustrating. And, and what would be easier if it wasn't departmentalized, if the person in the field directly had say line authority over that uh, accounts payable person, they would just call and make one phone call and say, Hey, cut a check to so-and-so and they would cut a check to so-and-so and they would be able to get the work done quickly. We want to be able to have somewhere in between. So I'll just run that example out one second. What could go wrong is if you have a person in the field that um, needs a $1,500 hold dug, and let's just say that they didn't get a quote, they didn't get an estimate, and they just paid the guy uh, because there was no real accountability there, then who's to say they would have tr- they would track that or they would know where that money went or say that the job costing uh, reporting aspect of it, who would say that that expense was against that job properly? So there's there's other aspects that could go wrong with, with giving people more authority or empowering people too much. So there's always a fine balance between all of this and it all has to do with your strategy. It has to do with your customers, it has to do with the environment. So here's um, four or five examples of different structures. We looked at the vertical structure. Looks like that's departmentalized too. Number two down here, this is one we haven't talked about yet, is the divisional structure. This is, so this is fun. Uh, you, you say you have a CEO of a company, and in the CEO of the company, they have the United States division, and then they have the Europe division. And these two divisions are really ran as different businesses. And underneath, the say, the Europe division, they have their own manufacturing department, they have their own production department, they have their own uh, human resources department. And that is the Europe division. So they have full control over how that uh, division runs. And then it's duplicated in the US. They have a separate human resources, human, I'm sorry, human resources accounting and manufacturing department. So say they're di- serving different areas or maybe they're serving different products or they're doing different tasks within the same company, but they have they have a reporting structure underneath them that's like duplicated. So you can see there's some for instance, duplicity of roles. So it's a little bit more expensive at times. And it could be, you know, say it's if it's consolidated, then it could potentially be cheaper and more efficient, but things need, things will happen slower. And the line of authority and chain of command is different. So I I, I enjoy the divisional structure, uh, but there's some downsides to it as well. The matrix structure is interesting and more prevalent. So the matrix structure, essentially you're sort of countable uh, to two different things at once. So for instance, if you're if you're building a house, so you're on the uh, product division, home division, like for instance, you, there's the home division and say that like there's the office building division. So you work with the home division. So within the home division, you're working for the accounting department. So you're really kind of responsible for ensuring that the home production division of your construction company um, the, the say the president of that division or the the vice president of that division, you report directly to them, but you also report to a manager in the accounting departments. So that's sort of what a matrix organization looks like. You kind of have this dual accountability, but it's a little bit more effective and you sort of get to mess with two different teams, which is, is fun at times. Team-based, uh, we're going to talk a lot about that. That's, you know, there's a lot of military operations that run like that. Uh, and as you can see, teams, these smaller teams are tend to be a little bit better. So there's a lot of positive there. There's no one particular leader on a team. There's usually specialists that work well together and collaborate well together on a team. And, you know, usually uh, like a captain will run like four or five different teams with different specialists. 
And then this vertical network is quite interesting. It's becoming more prevalent now because of the outsourcing that is happening. Like I'm publishing a book right now and this is how I operate. I have my designer, I have my editor, and then um, I have my marketing person. So I have three different people who don't know each other. So my editor, my marketing team, and my designer are just people that I hired, outsourced. And then I'm sort of running the project. I'm the central hub and I can bring in these different specialists. So I also work with an organization now who does something similar. And they actually, um, they run their company virtually and they contract with different LLCs to provide services. And then they do their accounting, they contract an accounting company to do all their accounting. So they sort of have a central hub, they contract out their field personnel, and then they contract out their accounting services. So they use this sort of virtual network as well. And with the internet, with Fiverr, with all this kind of stuff, this is happening more often. And this is where a lot of creative organizations, a lot of entrepreneurial organizations are moving to as well. Uh, we talked through functional structure. We talked through divisional structure. You can see the, I you know, explained this at length and I said that it has some value to it. And I use the Europe example versus the US example, but you can also use say a product. So for instance, we had this pool company, but we have this pool company and we have a pool repair division and we have a pool maintenance division. So in the pool repair division, division, they can be completely autonomous. They don't have to cooperate with the maintenance division. They can do that staff authority. They can advise each other, but the pool repair division can get their work done quickly. They have their own accounting department. They have their own HR department. They have their own manufacturer, their, their own production department. So they're running quick and hard and, and doing whatever they need to do separately than the pool maintenance division. Um, there's a lot of overlap there, so it may not be efficient, but that's one way of doing it. Uh, versus, uh, you know, the pool and maintenance division share those resources. Like they have, they share accounting, they share HR, they share uh, production, which is actually the way we do it. But uh, I'm just trying to show you how different products can fit into this as well. So this, again, is a unique one. And there's a lot of advantages to it for getting stuff done quicker, as opposed to having to collaborate in a more centralized fashion. You know, they, they have essentially a company built into their product or service, like their own little company. So that's why I think that's interesting. And then versus the functional structure where you have the ultimate authority and then you have the different departments that work underneath them. And, and also I want to mention that for the divisional structure, it tends to be a little bit more customer focused, tends to be more built around the customer because if the customer can get their product or get their service quicker, then that's good for everybody. But again, there's inefficiencies from an organizational level, and there's some complexities with managing uh, in a divisional structure as well. This is sort of a divisional structure that's managed in a geographic concept. You can see how geographies are sort of split up. Uh, this is a, an example of the matrix, matrix approach. Uh, you know, you're working for the home division or say the commercial division. And within that division, you're either reporting, you're either working human resources, manufacturing, or accounting. So you kind of have two bosses, two accountabilities, but based on the division, that's the one that you're working more on. Dual line of authority makes the matrix unique. Two bosses, talked about that, matrix boss and top leader person who oversees the product and functional chains. Okay, let's dive into the teams a little bit more because it's interesting that this terminology cross-functional teams is, is exactly what I talked about with these specialists that have unique abilities on a team. I think about the Avengers or I think about the... Uh, Fab Four or Fab Five or these superhero teams that get together, DC Comics, 
you know, again, I'm just trying to trying to get out of the Avengers theme, but uh, you know, I used to watch the Power Rangers. <laughs> they all had different little morphing powers where they they were totally different, but they came together as a team and they accomplished their goals. So that's sort of the concept of a team consists of employees from various functional departments who are responsible to meet as a team and resolve mutual problems. Uh, permanent teams, they work together all the time. Groups of employees who are organized in a way similar to a formal department and team-based structure. The entire organization is made up of horizontal teams that coordinate their work and work directly with customers to accomplish the organization's goals. So cross-functional teams are temp typically temporary. And then, of course, you have permanent teams that are uh, all the time. So a temporary team would be put together just for a like a task force uh, to do one particular project or one particular job. And then once that job is over, they would be dispersed. They would still work for the same company, but then they would uh, be assigned to, say, a different project and work with maybe a different team. And so it's fun uh, because these teams are everywhere. And even though even if you're not structured in this fashion, you're, we're going to work on teams often. And uh, certainly if we don't at work, maybe we might work on teams in our community and our small group. In our, sorry, in our church community and volunteer events, this kind of stuff. So some advantages are breaks down barriers across departments, improving coordination and cooperation because you have these different specialists and you have access to these different resources within the company because you have some of those specialists. Uh, enables rapid adaptation to environmental changes and consumer requests, boosts employee morale. And if you think about a bunch of smart people, a bunch of different people, diverse people getting together and working together, there's going to be some conflict and there's going to be some like feeling each other's each other out. It's that um, forming, storming, norming, and performing. It's sort of the process in which teams go through in order to become effective as a team. Uh, so that happens. And then, of course, the disadvantages are employees may experience dual loyalties, uh, require increased coordination efforts and time, can cause greater decentralization and loss of big picture. Virtual network approach. So we, we talked about this at length to the company that uh, I work for that really outsources uh, different things. Uh, the accounting department, the field specialist, and I also talked about my book and how I'm the central hub as the author. And I'm outsourcing an editor, outsourcing a designer, and outsourcing a marketing department as well. Okay. So this is just another network approach where you can see how all the all of these different departments can be outsourced and then the company can really uh, run with outsourcing all of this. There's a few downsides to outsourcing and obvious downsides, like you can't really control the staff members. And if you hire somebody, you might have to sign a contract. So there might be like a dual obligation to working with somebody. Employees are a little bit different, similar, but different. And also you say you have a job and you need the job done by next week and you contracted somebody to do the job. If they, for whatever reason, can't get the job done next week, it's not like you you can not work with them anymore, but you can't threaten them or coerce them into doing the job because really they don't they don't work for you. They, they are hired by you. So there's downsides and upsides to that. Obviously the upside is if you find somebody really good, you don't have to worry about managing them internally as employees. You outsource them and they can get it done, get it done quick. They're really good at it and you pay them and it's you move on to the next thing. So there's some good parts to it as well. I'm not going to walk through the advantages and disadvantages of each one of these different structures. The fact is that each of them has strengths and each of them has weaknesses. And I think throughout the conversation, we really talked about that. So it's important to understand a bunch of different elements that are at play, like what industry are we in? How routine is the work? How many people do we have? What are what are our resources that we have access to? All, and what are, what is our strategy? That's a big one. We're going to talk about that, I think, in a little bit. But all of these play into how we design our company, how we structure our 
tasks and our operations, how we set up our authority and our chain of command. This stuff is important. So organizing for horizontal coordination. This is not top-down now. This is not structurally with accountability and responsibility. Now we're talking about working cooperatively with people that are sort of on the same level of us as us. Coordination, the managerial task of collaborating across departments. We talked about this in some of the struggles that I had managing an accounting department versus a production department. If they're not working together all the time, it's hard to get them to collaborate and coordinate. And that's the duty of a leader and a manager to ensure that those things happen. And there's a bunch of ideas. You can have weekly meetings. You can uh, make sure that they maybe they're in an office environment where they work close to one another, where they can talk to each other. And it's really good for the leaders of those different divisions or departments to be able to enjoy each other's company, to work together nicely. Collaboration, joint effort between people from two or more departments to produce outcomes that meet a common goal or shared purpose. And they are typically greater than what could be achieved working alone. So when you collaborate with people, pretty obvious, when your powers join with my powers, like the Power Rangers, with our powers combined, uh, Captain Planet, you know, you, you can create something uh, magical, greater than those individual parts. So that's important to understand. Reengineering is a radical design of business process to achieve dramatic improvements. So think about how we accomplish tasks. Well, we can think about these tasks, break them down into different components, re-engineer how we accomplish them, restructure our company and get them done better. Re-engineering leads typically to new structures and new ways of doing business. Evolution of organizational structures. Really, this is where over time we went from more of a traditional approach to a functional teams approach. Then we started re-engineering things. And, and we restructure often. I, I enjoy the quote from IBM. The leader of IBM at the time was asked in an interview, how come, how come you guys are always restructuring? And the answer to the question is, well, if we haven't restructured lately, it's probably time to restructure. So that it was, he was basically answering the question in a way saying, hey, restructuring and reorganizing is a good thing. And we need to do it more often because if we don't realign how we do things to match the external environment at a company like IBM, we're going to miss out and we're going to lose this, this competitive match that we're in. Uh, and there's bad things to that as well, like constantly changing bosses, constantly changing structures. It can be confusing. But at a company like IBM, they're swift, they're agile, they're creative, they're used to it. So the re-engineering to horizontal teams probably happens quite often. We talked about a task force, temporary team, or committee designed to see, uh, see through a problem involving several departments. So bringing in specialists from each department, putting them on teams, getting a job done. Think about the like Hurricane Irma cleanup task force, the uh, COVID response team. So once COVID is over, you know, the task force sort of disperses. That's sort of what a task force is for. Project manager, I'm going to talk about this for a second because this happens a lot. And think about the book project that I'm on. I am the project manager and I'm managing all these different situations and I'm soliciting input from all of these different departments as the project manager. I work intermittently amongst the company and the resources within the company to get what I need so that I can accomplish a task or a project. We worked in a construction business. We built these beautiful pools and the project manager really needed to work uh, with a salesperson, needed to work with the accounting department, needed to work with the production department, needed to make sure that 
they were ultimately responsible. And we, as the support team, essentially internal, uh, you know, internal customers, he was our internal customer. So we had to make sure he had everything he needed from administrative specialists, had to make sure he had everything he needed to accomplish the project and get the work done right. So that's what project management uh, really is. So the, the, some of the factors that influence structure, and we talked a little bit about this, but the push and pull, or say that the two things that matter the most um, is strategic needs. What is our strategy? So our strategy to be the best at delivering hospitality service within the service industry. And we do that through this, this, and this. Well, that demands this kind of structure. Or maybe our strategy is focused on innovation and technology and being able to be more efficient with our processes. Well, that calls for this kind of structure. And so strategy matters. Um, the environment that we work in matters. Tech and innovation is turbulent. So it probably is going to demand a decentralized structure, maybe more of a matrix approach uh, versus, let's say, manufacturing, pretty predictable. Gas and oil, pretty predictable government tax, pretty predictable. So that structure is going to be more functional and more top-down. Operational needs is another one. So do we work in the field? You know, Do we have one project that's $500 million uh, for the year? Or do we have 250 million projects that are $2 each? So you know, how are we operationally constrained and what are we doing? Are we providing intellectual capital as a service or are we providing physical services? That matters too. So these are two factors that highly influence structure. Business performance is influenced by how well structures aligned with strategy and needs of the environment. Structures response to strategy and environment and mechanistic organizations, efficiency is the goal organic organizations, innovation is the goal. And we're about to start the change and in innovation within organizations component. So that's a great uh, segue. And this really just talks about if you have a, an organization that is needing to be more flexible, a horizontal teams might be a better approach than a functional structure. A divisional structure sort of has a little bit of a mixture of both. Then if you have a strategic goal is really cost leadership, efficiency, stability, functional structure is the way to go. And it's more mechanistic versus the other one with the horizontal teams, more innovation. It's more organic. It sort of comes together. It emerges based on the needs of the day, based on the needs of the customer. Okay, let's move into the second part of this, which is a bit more organic and enjoyable and innovative because we're talking about change and organizational innovation and creation of new ideas and solutions. And it's not just about company change, it's about individual behavior change. So when we talked about in the beginning, why it's important to create structure and we go into these chaotic places and as humans, as groups, as teams, as companies, we venture into the unknown essentially. And we're meant to create structure from the chaos. The question is, how often are we venturing out into the unknown? And why are we venturing into the unknown? And can that be fruitful to venture off into the unknown? In certain industries and certainly certain time periods, and especially with technology, it's almost imperative for us to venture into the unknown more often. As people that come together, are we incentivized to experiment and innovate and be entrepreneurial within our company? Or are we incentivized to sort of stay in the status quo and operate under procedure and this kind of stuff? Neither are bad. They're just different. And in this chapter, we're going to talk about the former venturing into the unknown, why it's important, why we need to do it, and how we can create human systems uh, around us to support that kind of behavior, that kind of activity. 
causes of change, outside forces, managers, change concepts, disruptive innovation versus ambidextrous approach. We'll talk about that. So disruptive innovation, they think about it like cloud computing, online shopping, portable computing, having workspaces. Like for instance, I'm in a shared space within my condominium complex right now, and I'm you know, giving a video to people to learn more about these subjects. This was not possible, say, 15 years ago, so now it is. These kinds of changes, disruptive innovations, cause organizations to restructure, change, be more adaptable. Reverse innovation is creating innovative, low-cost products for emerging markets, and then quickly and inexpensively repackaging them for sale in developed countries. So there's a lot of, there's this bottom of the pyramid concept where where cost is so important to create like mosquito nets that are efficient, effective, and cost really not that much at all. And the innovation there is so good that eventually they're able to push that through to a different demographic or different different groups. So think about microprocessors, like these chips that go into computers. They used to be so big, now they're so small. Things are becoming smaller, faster, and they're changing the way that we behave. And that's that's really important. And if we can't keep up, then we can't keep up. Ambidextrous approach is incorporating structures and processes that are appropriate both for creative impulse and for the systematic implementation of innovation. We can respond very quickly. We see an opportunity. We can capitalize on it. That's the creative impulse. And then the other one is, okay, once we capitalize on it, is there like a systematic way that we can foster that idea to to market, to commercialize it so that we can make money on it. Two sort of different things that we're going to talk about is ambidextric. Can we, can we hit with this hand? Boom. And then also be able to follow through on this hand as well. That's exploration and exploitation. Just mentioned that. Ex- exploration is encouraging creativity and exploitation is implementing that new idea within our company so that we can capitalize on that creativity. So we're changing product innovation, process innovation, technology change. These are three different things that change often within organizations. So product innovation is a change in organization's product, service, or outputs. Process innovation is a change in organization's production processes. And I know a lot of times technology has changed that. Certainly with field service, people use their phones and their apps to track their workflows and their tasks for the day. Um, that's an example of process innovation through technology. And obviously technology change, you think about artificial intelligence and different ways that organizations can incorporate, say, virtual technology, Zoom, virtual meetings, this kind of stuff into their processes and into their organization and into their management, because that's really what we're talking about. Discovery, horizontal collaboration and open innovation, innovation rules and structures, all of these incorporate into new products, services, and processes. So if a company, let's just say that you're making a car and the car really works well and it gets people from point A to point B, that's awesome. And you can just make that car for the next 300 years and be successful, right? Wrong. <laughs> How can we have a car that's successful? And put a lot of our effort and resources into keeping that car successful. But at the same time, we're discovering, we're, we have creative on ways to make the car better or possibly a new car. Bottom-up approach is really, you know, we solicit opinions from the frontline people and we ask like, how, how, is this working? Can this work better? Do you have any ideas on how we can make this car more effective? And, and getting those opinions from the frontline people up the chain of command to make something different. Internal contests. This is, you know, creative ways to get people to be competitive about doing new things within our company. 3M is a great example of this. They're somewhat competitive about the way in which they incentivize their staff members to create new things, new products, new new um, new products, new ideas. Like, say, twenty percent of their time is spent 
doing new things. They're actually asked to create something new. Like that's a part of their job. We've designed it into their job. Uh, very interesting. Idea incubators is a part of that too. So horizontal collaboration, say the accounting department works with the operations department and how can they do a better job working together so that they can be more creative with getting things done quicker. Uh, this is all about the customers. What does the customer want? How can we create our product or technology or service around the customer? That's a big part of change and innovation is the customer needs, desires, and their expectations. They change the way we design our organization. Uh, open innovation is really allowing ideas to come into the company from competitors and ideas to come into the company from a multitude of different sources. Innovation roles and structures, idea champions, new venture teams. Skunk Works is like a, a secret team that's like creating new products and services. I think about like a magic sauce for Wendy's, you know, there's probably like a skunk team working on some super awesome sauce, a new venture fund. So this is like corporate entrepreneurship within a company. We can actually create roles and structures like an R&D department, you know, innovation within XYZ company. And that's what they do. They come out with new ways of doing things that it's internal to the company. Creativity is a generation of novel ideas that might meet perceived needs or respond to opportunities for the organization. So creativity is the process of looking at things differently. It's a it's a it's a practice of looking at things differently. If you if you think about the number 14, how many different ways can you write the number 14? A multitude of different ways. So experimenting with with creativity is really an exercise or a drill. And the creativity is different from innovation, which innovation is really based on that creativity. You now create a product. You have a an invention. So you've actually created like a prototype or you've done it. You put it into play and and then from there, you go to entrepreneurship and entrepreneurship is like commercializing it. That's capitalizing on that creative, innovative process to then put great value from that. You have a creative individual. What are the components of a creative individual? And then how can we create a creative organization? Wow, what a mind-blowing concept. Creative individuals are great. Uh, right brain thinkers, intuitive thinkers. This is very important. Also, we need left brain thinkers, logical, rational, like let's hold that creativity down a little bit. But we should unleash those right brain thinkers and those creative peoples within our organization, within certain boundaries and structures to do great things because we know that change is coming. We cannot stay still. So a creative person is persistent, committed, has a focused approach, conceptually fluent, open-minded. Open-minded is a personality trait. It's a Openness, like they, they, they want new ideas. They want to do something different. Uh, originality, less authority, independence, self-confident, creative individuals, playful, undisciplined, exploration, curious. So are we fostering these kinds of individuals? Are we hiring these kinds of individuals in our company? And are we giving them a structure to play with? And the, the structure is what we're about to talk about in a second is that creative organization. Can the creative person flourish within our creative organization? Can we leverage their creativity to do great things within our structure? So creative organizations, they have open channels of communication. They have contact with outside sources. They're doing research and they're listening to news channels, overlapping territories, cross-pollination of ideas across disciplines, suggestion systems, brainstorming sessions, freewheeling discussions, uh, diverse teams, uh, creative exercises throughout the day. Are we assigning non-specialist to problems. So if you have somebody in the accounting department that's assigned to like a human resource problem, like, what do you think about this? Well, I think differently than you do. So that's good. Like, let's foster those, those uh, non-specialist 
ideas for problems. Problem identification is a big deal and being creative with the way in which we look at problems, similar to what they did in the, in the movie Moneyball uh, for the uh, Astros, I think it was Houston Astros or the A's. Uh, I think it was the A's, but uh, ways in which we can find baseball players differently and look at their stats differently. They're on base percentage versus, versus just their home runs and their demeanor and their popularity. And we can use those things to, to be great. So decentralization we talked about is good for creative companies, loosely defined positions, loose control, acceptance of mistakes, rewarding risk-taking, reducing fear. There's a guy I sat next to on a plane he was headed to Hawaii with his family. And I said, well, what, why are you going on this trip? He said, well, my organization, I did a project for my organization. I, I made my company like $50 million through doing this creative project. And I said, wow, that's, that's incredible. You know, I, you know, it seems like going to Hawaii with your family is not that great of a prize for that kind of innovation. He says, no, I, I love my company. I love working here because they give me access to all of these resources that I wouldn't have access to if I worked on my own. In order to make that $50 million project happen and be successful, I can leverage all these different resources. Plus, they're sending me to Hawaii. They're acknowledging me. They're giving me a bonus. They're taking my, that my family's coming with me. They're, they're going to give me an award on a stage. So for him, it was worth it. Like the organization is designed so that it encourages him to make changes. Another not so nice uh, story that I heard was that, you know, a staff member, of an organization was given a budget, say a million dollars to go perform this project. And he launched this new product and the product failed and they lost all of the million dollars. And the next day, the boss, the CEO of the company came into his office and he's like, okay, you know, that's it. I'm fired. You know, this is tough. And the CEO walked in the office and the guy was like, okay, well, I guess, you know, I have to leave. And the CEO said, of course not. You're not leaving. You're not going anywhere. Uh, I just, why would I fire you or let you go? I just gave you a million dollar education because he failed. Therefore he learned in that kind of, that kind of culture, that kind of, yeah, we don't reward that kind of failure, but we certainly don't discourage it. And we want people to try new things. We don't want people to be afraid to try new things. Uh, this is really important. Okay. So there's some other things, uh, freedom to choose, pursue problems, you know, say, I think that's a problem. I want to fix that as opposed to having your boss tell you, Hey, go fix that. That's a big difference. Not a tight ship, playful culture, doing the impractical things, freedom to discuss ideas, long time horizon, uh, absolution of peripheral responsibility, reward system, encourages innovation and resource allocated to creative personnel and projects without immediate payoff. They so talk through some of that stuff. This is a list of companies in 2020 that are considered innovative. Snap, I think that's Snapchat, Microsoft, Tesla, Big Hit Entertainment, HackerOne, White Claw, Shopify, Canva. And these are just some examples of creative companies. Characteristics of innovative companies. Work with customers to understand needs and develop solutions. They, they actually ask their customers, what is it that we can do better? And they listen and they dialogue and they, they put it into implementation. They put it into play. They use new technology effectively they share new product development processes. Members from key departments cooperate that that uh, cross-department uh, and specialist conversation that we have. Cross-functional teams, guides projects from beginning to end. Horizontal linkages, we talked about that a lot, that you know, th these different departments that are different, different specialties, maybe product departments, potentially say somebody that operates in Europe 
and somebody that operates in the US, they share best practices that helps people be more innovative. They encourage open innovation. Crowdsourcing is an interesting one approach to open innovation that involves obtaining information, ideas, and opinions from a large group of people. If you've seen these surveys on Facebook and these surveys on LinkedIn, they say, hey, you know, what do you think we should do for our Christmas party? And there's like five ideas. And one of them is like, go to Six Flags. Another one is, well, you know, don't do anything and just give everyone a hundred bucks. And the other one is, um, well, you know, go to North Pole and do something crazy. And then we get the vote and saying, well, why don't we open these decisions and open these ideas uh, to the crowd and see what they have to say, which is an interesting approach. So innovation by acquisition, you just buy a company that's super innovative and that's doing something emergent within the market or something creative within the market. You just, you just merge with them or buy them. It's another way to become innovative without doing it organically. Uh, coordination model for innovation, new technologies, open innovation mechanisms, customers' market needs, formal innovation partners, all getting put into this organization, horizontal linkages where people work together between the manufacturing department, research and development, and marketing department. And it creates this like network and hub of, of, of incubates ideas that come out and drive this kind of innovation. Corporate intrapreneurship, and I talked about corporate entrepreneurship, which is what I call it. And it is development of an internal entrepreneurial spirit, philosophy, and structure to encourage employees to act like entrepreneurs. It's really like a, a venture team within a company. It's called corporate venturing. And you're really spurring entrepreneurial activity within a corporation, which seems paradoxical, but it's actually brilliant. And it should be done more often. And we should encourage these entrepreneurial spirited minded people, uh, certainly in industries that are dynamic with a lot of external turbulence uh, and industries that are more static, more structured, more mechanistic, maybe not as much. I, Because I believe in the entrepreneurial spirit, it's hard for me to say that. But the point is, um, sometimes on really super entrepreneurial people could be ineffective on a particular team. So that's just something to think about. Uh, assign an idea champion. This is a great one. Person who sees the need for the enthusiastically supports productive change within the organization. So if if you have, if you know that change is important, and somebody seems to be a right brain thinker and enjoys collaborating with other people in order to make new things happen, call them your idea champion. Give them a role. Give them a title. Call them an ambassador. Give them an award. Uh, in our organization, we had this cool award called the Dreamer and Doer Award. Didn't cost us any money, but we acknowledged somebody that didn't just comply within our company, but created new things and made things better, took initiative and went after it. And I think that that's a, a trait we can foster simply by awarding it and also assigning roles for it as well. Idea incubator organizational programs that provide a safe harbor for employees to generate and develop ideas without interference from company bureaucracy or politics. Huge, I think that should happen everywhere. New venture teams, Skunk Works, in-house ventures. We talked a little bit about that. So now this is, okay, slow down for a second. That's creating an innovative organization. Those are some ways in which we can solicit creative thought, hire creative people, put them into some collaborative structure, give them some boundaries, which allows them to foster that spirit of creativity and innovation that we can capitalize on within our company. That's important. Now we're talking about changes in people and culture. Do we do this consistently with, with creativity? It's all about the quantity, not quality. How many times are we trying to do this? How often do we create? How often do we swing at the plate? Not 
hey, I took a couple of swings and I hit a home run, therefore I'm a good hitter. No, are you doing things differently all the time throughout the season? People change, changes in the mindset of, of, of employees, culture change, changes in the mindset of the organization as a whole. And then we have tools that smooth the organization change process, training and development programs, and organizational development, which is a topic in itself. It's really sort of planned change. It's incorporating uh, programs and philosophies and trying to grow people within a company so that uh, they understand the culture of empathy and they can become better servant leaders. And we're creating a, a cultural change that leads to innovation or leads to change. So organization development is a is a great is a great subject that fosters some of those change initiatives, those change interventions within companies. Training and development. Training is a frequently used approach to changing people. Training programs that emphasize doing things differently or managing people differently. Organization development is more practically defined as planned, systematic um, process change of people. They use behavioral science techniques to create positive corporate cultures and improve the way people and departments relate to one another. OD focuses on human and social aspects of the organization, encourages a sense of community, push for organization climate of openness and trust, provide opportunities for personal growth and development, and managing conflict differently. So it's really coming alongside of people, playing on the same side of the tennis match as them. Uh, as a doubles partner and not hitting the ball back and forth and seeing a way in which we can get them to move and progress uh, culturally and collectively with trust and empathy towards their coworkers. I mean, that's a sort of a cloudy way to define organization development, team building, survey feedback, large group interventions. These are tools that OD uses to create change within companies. Traditional organization department Development model, large uh, group intervention model, uh, focus on action, information, source distribution, timeframe learning, change process has an incremental change and rapid transformation. Incremental change is really, hey, we're going to do something a little different, and then we're going to see how that goes. Then we're going to do something again, a little different, do an intervention, see how that goes. We're going to test it. We're going to look at it. And over the next three or four years, we hope that eventually we're going to be a different company versus transformational changes. Hey, we're restructuring. We have a new leader, we have new values, we're rebranding, and this change is coming quick. Whether you like it or not, uh, we're going to have to change here, sort of like a divine spiritual awakening for a company, in a sense. That's more of a transformational change, requires transformational leaders, and uh, requires uh, likely incorporation of new value systems and new habits and new uh, attitudes and beliefs, implementing innovation and change. So this is a fun one. In order to get people to change, essentially habits are routinely ingrained almost in like they're, they physically manifest themselves in our brain. And in order to acknowledge it, we have to be conscious of the incompetence we have. Like we have to change. So we have to be conscious of the fact that we have to change. And so that's the unfreezing process, making individuals aware of problems and motivating them to change. Like, hey, this habit really, it's not working anymore. And people are like, oh, dang, you know, you're right. Okay, great. So there's some acknowledgement there. That's awesome. So changing is individuals experiment with new behavior and learn new skills to use in the workplace. So we, my wife and I had a baby. We had to change our routine of our days. And our, you know, she's been on maternity leave now for three months. And I was taking my daughter to school for those three months as opposed to her taking her to school because she works at the same school that my daughter goes to. 
So really I had to unfreeze, hey, my schedule is going to change, go to the gym a different time. I'm going to have to um, play with this new schedule and see how it works for me. And then eventually I got used to it. I refroze that schedule. Individuals acquire new attitudes and values are rewarded for them by the organization. I enjoyed my time with my daughter. I decided to be productive in the car um, while I was driving. I found a new time to go to the gym. I found a new social network at my at my gym that I enjoyed being with. And now, ironically, this week, we're actually changing back. So, you know, that's just a personal example of how unfreezing, this is how we do things. And it's, it's not working. There's a new variable here. Okay, we acknowledge that. So how are we going to change? What, what actual change are we going to implement into our habits and our routines? And then ingraining that change, freezing that change into what we do every day. And hopefully at that point, we're better off. So that's what I just explained. Diagnose problems or opportunities. Then we plan the change. And then we refreeze, reward people for new values and behaviors, celebrate the success. That's sort of how we, what we don't want is we unfreeze, we change. And then we go back eventually to where we were before. So it happens temporarily, but we default back to the easy button and we go back to how we're doing it before. So we want to refreeze in the new change. That's a big deal. And changing is hard, you know, changing behavior and changing mindsets and changing people is, is a difficult task, but you can do it. I believe in you. So there's a self-interest component. Why do people resist change? And like how things are, they don't want to. There's a lack of understanding and trust about whether or not this change is going to benefit them or the organization. There's uncertainty involved, which there's a risk. It's the unknown. It's the chaos. They haven't made made structure of it yet. They're fine within the structure they live in, and they don't really want to venture out into the unknown. Uh, maybe they had trauma from the past. Different assessments and goals. They have different goals than you as the leader, the manager, the organization. Creating a sense of ur urgency. This is like ripping the bandaid off. Hey, listen, we don't change. We're going to die. We won't exist. We have to evolve. We have to change. We have to be urgent. We have to move fast. There's a great book called, um, I think it's just called Sense of Urgency. It's, um, yeah, I think it's just called A Sense of Urgency. Uh, unbelievable book. And, and it defines the concept of having that sense of urgency. Think about when you have a conversation with a with a boss or a coworker, you say, you know, yeah, we should do that project. And that sounds great. But then there's real no sense of urgency. So it just kind of lingers on and nobody really talks about it. And eventually a month later, you get together again, and you say, well, you know, what happened? We're supposed to do it. Nothing happened. Because really, truth, truly, nobody really had a sense of urgency about it. So this kind of attitude happens in organizations too. Uh, so need for change, a disparity between existing and desired performance levels. A lot of times when you think about leadership, you think about change, you think about vision, and they want to, leaders have to make sure they define a desired future state. That's really important for change. Okay, why am I changing? Where are we going towards? Where am I going? And am I going to follow you? And do I even want to go there? So it's important to get people to understand that vision. So a couple of uh, approaches, uh, top management support, communication, education, participation, negotiation, and coercion. Coercion is probably the last one that you want to do. You basically use your power to tell a person that, hey, listen, <laughs> you're going to get fired unless you change, or you're not going to get paid unless you change. So that's more coercion. Uh, initiators clearly have the power. Other implementation techniques have failed. So that's the last one you want to do. I particularly like this participation uh, section, which is more OD focused, as users need to feel involved. Uh, design requires information from others. Users have the power to 
to resist. Like you kind of give them that space to say, okay, you know, let's shape the change around some of your thoughts and opinions. And we want to solicit that because we want to make this our change and not just my change. Okay. That's it. I um, want to thank you for listening and hopefully you now understand the importance of venturing in the chaos and creating structure from that chaos and the functional structure, divisional structures, matrix structures, and then um, centralized communication, decentralized communication, the different environments that that works well in and you know some of the factors that help determine that. And then also I really do um, hope that you understand change. You understand the, the variables that go into change, why it's important for organizations to change and uh, hope you enjoyed it and God bless and see you later.